American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Um, it is so wonderful to see all of you here tonight. Uh, my name is Donna Ayn Davis, and I am the director for the Center for the Study of Women and Society. And we are absolutely delighted that this evening we have our inaugural book salon series. The salons allow us to showcase the work of faculty across the CUNY campuses and to work collaboratively with departments and programs within the CUNY system. Tonight's salon is co-sponsored by the Institute for the Research on the African Diaspora in the Americas and the Caribbean, also with the PhD program in history and with the feminist press. And since every event's success is always due to the efforts of those who are behind the scenes, I want to thank the staff who work in the center, Brenna McCaffrey, Eileen Liang, and Solange Castellar. They are wizards at helping to make tonight a success. So the structure of the salons is that a featured author reads from their recent work for about 20, 15 to 20 minutes, and then there are two interlocutors who engage with the author about their work for about 40 minutes. And then we have question and answer for the last 15 minutes. And tonight, I am so pleased and excited to introduce Deirdre Cooper Owens, who is going to read from her new book, Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology. Professor Cooper Owens is an assistant professor of history at Queens College. She earned her PhD in history from the University of California, Los Angeles, where she also received a certificate in women's studies. She is an active public speaker and has served as an expert on slavery history, the history of medical racism, and the Civil War. As a public intellectual, her most recent popular pieces have appeared in Rewire, Black Perspectives, and the Democratic Socialists of America blog. She is an international board member of the Berkshire Conference of Women Historians. And currently, she is working on issues related to reproductive justice and anti-racism with community groups in New York City. And she's finishing a podcast series with Teaching Tolerance and the Southern Poverty Law Center on how to teach US slavery to secondary school teachers. Called Extraordinary and Crucial, Medical Bondage explores a wide range of scientific literature and less formal communications in which gynecologists created and disseminated medical fictions about their patients, such as their belief that black enslaved women could withstand pain better than white ladies. Medical bondage moves between southern plantations and northern urban centers to reveal how 19th century American ideas about race, health, and status influence doctor-patient relationships in sites of healing such as slave cabins, medical colleges, and hospitals. It also retells the story of black enslaved women and women of Irish descent from, the, from their perspective. And I just want to add also that um, Professor Cooper Owens was recently selected by the Organization of American History to be an OAH Distinguished Lecturer. The esteemed interlocutors who will be in conversation with Professor Cooper Owens are 
Jennifer Morgan, who is a professor of history in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at New York University, where she also serves as chair. She is the author of Laboring Women, Gender and Reproduction in the Making of New World Slavery, and the co-editor of Connections, Histories of Race and Sex in America. Her research examines the intersections of gender and race in the black Atlantic world. She is currently at work on a project that considers colonial numeracy, racism, and the rise of the transatlantic slave trade in the, in the 17th century English Atlantic world, tentatively titled, Accounting for the Women in Slavery. The second, our second interlocutor is Sasha Turner, who is the author of Contested Bodies, Pregnancy, Child Rearing, and Slavery in Jamaica, which examines the struggles for control over biological reproduction and how central childbearing was to the organization of plantation work, the care of slaves, and the development of their culture. She is an associate professor of history at Quinnipiac University, and currently, Dr. Turner is a fellow at Yale University's Gilder Lerman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, where she is working on her new book project tentatively titled, Slavery, Emotions, and Gender. Please join me in warmly welcoming Deirdre Cooper Owens, Jennifer Morgan, and Sasha Turner. First, I'd like to uh, thank all of you for uh, being here and sharing space with us tonight. Also, thank you to Donna Ayeen Davis for her gracious invitation and to think we met less than a year ago at a house party in Harlem, <laughs> drinking wine, and I talked her ear off. <laughs> but she was kind enough to uh, actually read my work. <laughs> um, and also to Jennifer Morgan and Sasha Turner, I was asked who I wanted to share space with me and to discuss this book. And I can think of uh, no two better scholars than to have them flank me tonight. So I'm really, really quite pleased. So I am going to read um, just a few pages from chapter two entitled Black Women's Experiences in Slavery and Medicine. Every chapter begins with a, a quotation. And so this one is from Edward DeBow, a formerly enslaved man. She died about three hours after I was born. They made my ma work too hard. Decades out of slavery, Julia Brown explained to Geneva Tonsil, an African-American Works Progress Administration interviewer, how her former owner practiced medicine on his slaves. Brown recounted, and I quote, he tried one medicine and if it didn't do no good, he tried another until it did do good. Brown's account illustrates the risky and experimental nature of 19th century American medicine. Further, the medical encounters she described also reveal the dimensions of slaves' powerlessness against owners who took on the extra duty of caring medically for them. Julia Brown's case is representative of that of any number of enslaved black women who were rendered unable to heal themselves as they wished. The medical experiences of Brown and other slave women symbolize the elasticity of early American medicine a field that integrated both formal and informal practices. 
Medical doctors practiced medicine on black women's bodies, as did slave owners who formed close relationships with these medical men. Like, tra like trained physicians, Brown's master risked killing his slaves in an effort to heal them. Julia Brown's case illuminates how Southern white men developed and deployed medical and pharmaceutical methods that revealed how the value of black people's lives shifted back and forth like the measurements on a sliding scale. The growing body of literature on US slavery and more specifically scholarship on the medical lives of enslaved people describe in great detail how valuable black women's reproductive labor was to both institutions. To birth a living and healthy black slave was rewarding for all members of slave communities, including the mother, the plantation physician, and the slave owner. Each of these actors was invested in a slave child's birth for varied reasons. The investment in protecting the worth of black babies is well documented in the slave narratives of former bond men and bond women who recalled how expectant mothers protected the children in their wombs while, while, excuse me, while receiving the lash. There are numerous judicial cases across slaveholding states that reveal how vested owners were in the reproductive health of black mothers and their unborn children. Last, in murder trials that involved pregnant enslaved women as defendants, execution dates were halted until their children were born. Arkans and Marie Hervey, who lived on the Hess Plantation in Tennessee, remembered how parturient women on the plantation were punished physically. She stated, and I quote, they used to take pregnant women and dig a hole in the ground and just and jut their stomachs in it and whip them. They tried to do my grandma that way. Had it not been for the efforts of her grandfather, who threatened those charged to whip his wife with violence, white plantation managers might have greatly harmed both mother and child. In an Alabama court case, Athey versus Olive, Littleton Olive bought a seemingly healthy pregnant slave, Matilda, from Henry Athey. Matilda's baby died shortly after the sale. Olive sued Athey for $500 on the grounds that Matilda was not of sound mind, and also that Athey had breached their contract. Surely, Matilda experienced a tremendous amount of stress as she endured removal from her home to a new slave community, pregnancy, and possibly other factors that remain unknown. Further, her new owner blamed Matilda for producing a stillborn. State of Missouri versus Celia, a slave, stands as one of the most infamous antebellum era criminal cases focusing on an enslaved women, woman's reproductive labor. The trial's outcome demonstrates that the judicial system prized the woman's pregnancy and unborn child rather than the teen mother who had been raped for five years by her late owner, Robert Newsom. Celia murdered Newsom, who had repeatedly raped her since she was 14 years old. She had borne two of Newsom's children and was pregnant at the time of his death. The local court found her guilty and sentenced Celia to death. They delayed her execution, however, until she could give birth to her baby. As disparate as these two examples seem, they encapsulate the totalizing and punitive effects of the maternal-fetal conflict. Legal theorist Dorothy Roberts uses this term to describe the ways that laws, medical practices, and social policies differentiated between a pregnant woman's interest 
and those of her fetus. Roberts traces the genealogy of this conflict to slavery. Of significance in her study are those cases where masters whipped enslaved women but shielded their bellies from the lash. Pleading the belly was a process in English common law that allowed women in late stage pregnancy to give birth before their death sentences were executed. Slave births created an incentive rooted in real property that merged with European religious and patriarchal notions that predated the institution of American slavery by centuries. Pregnant enslaved women lived in a society that invented and maintained practices that treated mother and child as separate entities. As a consequence, the mother's real value was in her reproductive health and her labor, which helps explain why reproductive medicine was so important during this era. White men with a stake in upholding slavery relied heavily on medical language and practices to treat and punish black women. Hence, slave owners and medical men upheld the practice of doing what they believed best medically to maintain a reproductively sound or healthy female slave labor force that was capable of breeding. The common linkage between the experiences of these enslaved women was their helplessness to resist the medical practices performed on their bodies. As much as enslaved women resisted their bondage and oppression, circumstances limited their power to defy their masters. Slavery and the antebellum era medical field stripped slaves of agency at every turn. Just as Southern white babies suckled away at the women's life-sustaining milk, a re reproductive labor act that forced black mothers to provide calories for white infants' nourishment and growth at the expense of their own children's well-being. Slavery and the rise of American gynecology were the vessels that poured both life and death into black women's lives. Although white medical men and many members of black communities expected these manly women or black medical superbodies to transcend fragility, many did not. The black female body was further hypersexualized, masculinized, and endowed with brute strength because medical science validated these ideologies. These myths led to the prevailing notion that enslaved women were impervious to pain. Tales abounded about black women's inability to feel physical pain. Delia Garlic recalled how shocked her mistress was when Delia felt unconscious after the mistress struck her atop the head with a piece of lumber, Delia stated, and I quote, I heard the mistress say to one of the girls, I thought her thick skull and cap of wool could take it better than that. Former slave Harriet Jacobs shared in her memoir how her owner forced an enslaved woman to eat food that had killed his pet dog. The master did so because he believed that, and I quote, the woman's stomach was stronger than the dog's. Further, the worries of bondwomen were rooted in the reality of the demanding physical labor they performed daily and the fear of the medical treatment they might receive as punishment. Edward Debeau, who was formerly enslaved, and I began the chapter with his quote, suggested that his mother's premature death was caused by these factors. Debeau remarked that his mother died about three hours after he was born because they made her work too hard. William Lynn Crew, an overseer who worked for Georgetown County, South Carolina plantation owner, Cleland Kinlaw Hugie, wrote to his boss about how he continued to work two pregnant field hands who had tried to escape while laboring in low country rice paddies. 
On July 3rd, 1847, Lynn Crew wrote that the Paturient women were confined, which had done nothing in the hoeing of the rice. He made no allowance for sickness. As much as enslaved women tried to resist their oppression, as the two Paturient women had, they could do very little to protect themselves from the toll that field work took on their bodies. It is little wonder that enslaved women were at grave risk of suffering serious prenatal conditions. Prenatal risk was the price that slave owners, and by extension the doctors they hired to care for their female labor force, were willing to pay to ensure that black women continued to birth slaves with great frequency. Motherhood was important to all women during the 19th century, but enslaved women's notion of motherhood and womanhood had linkages to the African continent. Enslaved women who were descended from West and Central African ethnic groups continued to incorporate the cultural practices that their foremothers had taught them about motherhood. These lessons ranged from how to suckle their children to how to wrap them in swaddling cloth while the mothers farmed plots of land. Also because enslaved people could not legally marry and raise their children in the nuclear family model that was common for white Americans, motherhood took on special significance for black women in ways that marriage did not. Historian Andrew Apter discusses the importance of blood mothers in 19th century Yoruba land in southwest Nigeria and certain parts of Togo, Ghana, and Benin. Apter states, and I quote, the model of West African motherhood that took effect in the Americas is associated with the blood of mothers, that which gives them the ability to conceive and give birth. Blood served as the metaphor for West African mothers and their descendants who were born in America. It contained both good and bad essences that forged ties among black women that were both secret and sacred. Life and death were contained in the blood. From the release of menstrual blood and blood loss during miscarriages to the symbolic use of blood as a mode for purification. For women who anticipated pregnancy and motherhood because of their significance in their conceptions of womanhood and also their self-worth as fertile women, the intrusion in their lives of white southern men who replaced mid midwives compromised the deeply personal relationship they had with one another on an ancestral and cultural level. Black women viewed themselves as the, as the cultural bearers of West African beliefs about motherhood, but they had to combat negative views that white physicians had about black women's bodies, especially their genitalia. Because doctors believed in the inferiority of women and the double inferi inferiority of black women, they considered natural biological conditions such as menstru menstruation pathological. In the same vein, they also determined that the clitoris was an underdeveloped penis. And in an 1810 medical article, Dr. John Archer asserted that the clitorises of little black girls were larger than those of their white peers because they accompanied their enslaved mothers to the fields while they worked. The doctors theorized that because these children sat unattended for long periods, their clitorises developed at a younger age. In the first half of the 19th century, deviancy, deviancy excuse me, seemed to define femaleness. Sadly, this American conception of womanhood, health, and value precluded the importance of the West African blood mother. It is from these seeds that modern American gynecology germinated into a branch of medicine adorned with both flowers and thorns. Like their peers in 18th century Europe, Antebellum American doctors who created gynecology began with the belief that females in general were a sexual subset of their race. 
despite the general belief that black people, especially women, were inferior. The bodies of black women fascinated as well as repulsed white Southern doctors. American slavery provided abundant opportunities for medical doctors to experiment on and sometimes heal sick bond women. Medical doctors happily engaged in experimental medical research that focused on restoring black women's reproductive capabilities as the following examples illustrate. In 1835, four doctors, John Bellinger, S.H. Dixon, T.G. Prelo, and T. Ogier, and two medical students, Mr. Tennant and Mr. Frierson, conducted an experimental ovarian surgery on a 35-year-old black slave woman. She was to have an ovarian tumor removed. The woman was the mother of one child, born seven years earlier. She had also suffered a number of miscarriages. The previous year, the enslaved woman felt a lump on the right side of her abdomen. And since then, she had been troubled with pain in her abdominal area. Doctors later diagnosed her as having a tumor. Right before Christmas, her team of doctors performed an ovariotomy to excise her tumor. During the surgery, the doctors realized there was and these are the words from the Medical Journal article, no opportunity for the safe use of the knife. One of the doctors recorded in his notes that the enslaved patient lost, and I quote, her self-command, screamed and struggled violently, rendering it no easy task to control her movements and support the viscera. The viscera are the intestines. After physically re restraining her, the doctors continued the operation. Her recovery was slow, and she later reported that she never again menstruated. Although the procedure had probably made her sterile, thereby decreasing her economic value, her diseased ovary, which was displayed, uh, displayed at the Charleston, South Carolina Medical College's museum, held greater worth for her doctors. This enslaved woman's diseased ovary would be used as a pedagogical tool and a medical curiosity. In a similar case a decade later, Dr. Raymond Harris a Georgia physician, was asked by William Patterson, a slave owner in Bryan County, to examine one of his slaves. She had been experiencing uncommon symptoms during her pregnancy. After Harris probed the parturient woman, he found that she had a large, irregular tumor. The woman's menses had ceased for two years, and she had been constipated for months. Harris operated on the 36-year-old mother and determined that she had an ovarian pregnancy. He gave the bondwoman medicine, and her condition improved almost immediately. After some time had elapsed, Harris wrote a medical article about the case. In it, he claimed that the enslaved woman's plantation owner and nurse had testified that the bondwoman had successfully regained her menses. Unfortunately, the enslaved woman began to experience the same symptoms she had manifested some years before she became uh, Dr. Harris's patient. Harris prescribed a potent dos dosage of medicine that included iodide of potassium in five gram doses. And just as an aside, um, since the 1820s, iodide of potassium had been used to treat syphilis, although this wasn't stated in the article. She died shortly thereafter. Upon learning of the woman's death, Harris stated, and I quote, although it was late in the day and myself much hurried, I requested permission to open the body. He later lamented in the article that he had not saved the enslaved woman's reproductive parts for preservation and study. For early gynecologists like Harris, even post-mortem, a bond woman's real value was still measured by her reproductive organs. Preserving diseased and damaged reproductive parts, performing experimental surgeries, and canvassing slave communities for sick patients helped Southern doctors 
medical colleges and museums, and their faculty and students advance their medical knowledge, quite literally, on the broken bodies of black slaves. Prior to the founding of the American Medical Association in 1847, there was no single code of medical ethics. Systems of ethics regarding experimentation on the enslaved were idiosyncratic. In an 1826 issue of the Philadelphia Journal of Medical and Physical Sciences, Dr. P. Tiedemann advised physicians who treated the enslaved that, and I quote, it should always be left to the choice of the patient to go into the hospital or be attended in his house. It was the interest and duty of the owner to consult the feelings of the slave, end quote. Despite the seemingly polite ritual in Southern manners, the practice, even if actually followed, rang hollow for enslaved patients if they did not know what the treatments would do to their bodies. Unfortunately, the, ideolo the ideology of anti-black racism was too ingrained in the culture for Southern physicians to heed Dr. Tiedemann's admonishments. Even if an enslaved woman stated that she did not want to be operated on, once her owner granted permission to the surgeon to perform surgery, an operation occurred. Medical care of slaves evolved from its beginnings on slave ships to a mostly unregulated behemoth that tended to create rules as the field evolved. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the reading and thank you for the work. Um, as you were reading, I was anxious because I had this part uh, marked, which is where I wanted to start, and I was afraid you were going to read it, but you stopped right before. <laughs> so now I get to move us into a larger conversation about the that about what I what I see think of as the core claim of the book. I, I, I want, I'm hoping that we can talk about many of the, of the pieces of your argument because I think they, one of the things that's so fascinating um, about your work is how you interweave um, a number of different sort of phenomena in the 19th century. But I did just want to say, uh, to read this, this, um, this last piece. This was on, from page 48. You wrote, um, Although experimentation on enslaved women was extensive, it was almost always therapeutic, since the goal was to enhance reproductive success. Broadly, most doctors who worked on slaves did so to protect, if not increase, the economic interests of slave owners and also to perfect their own skill set as doctors and physicians. The growth of gynecology provided for the maintenance of sound black female reproductive bodies, and it also served to perpetuate the institution of slavery. So like, hear what she's doing there, right? This, one of the things that this book does is it makes an argument that the history of gynecology is the history of slavery. Um, and that uh, healthy, um, that, the, that, that, that the effort to, to, to kind of protect reproductive health for all women is rooted in the economic interests of protecting the reproductive health of enslaved women. And so the, the final sentence here is, slavery, medicine, and capitalism were intimate bedfellows. And I was just wondering if you, so, so there, now I got to read your beautiful words. <laughs> and can I just jump in? So it's, I sort of highlight Exactly. <laughs> we both have stars on that section of the, because yeah. I think that that's really the core 
um, the sort of fundamental argument of, of the book, which is to say that slavery, medicine, and capitalism um, evolved together. And so I wonder, so now let me turn it into a question. Um, if you could talk a little bit about the, the intervention that you're making around the history of medicine, right? So that the ways in which you lay out the, the, the development of the field of gynecology um, through black women's bodies and the debt that's owed. So if you could sure. just talk about that a little bit. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the question. Um, this is really interesting for me because in, in many ways, I, when I began this project, I wasn't thinking about it as, as even touching upon economic history. And yet slavery is all about economic history, right? Um, and so I think what's really interesting when you go to the archives and even some of the earlier secondary work, um, G. Barker, Benfield's work, 19, eight, late 18th and 19th century physicians thought of themselves as medical entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I try to show in my book is the ways that um, these doctors were continuously thinking about, in 21st century parlance, branding themselves, their surgical techniques, the tools that they used, the surgical instruments that they were perfecting or fixing. So someone like a James Marion Sims, for instance, who you know most people are, um, especially in New York, pretty familiar with, um, because he's considered the father of American gynecology, I, I often tell people when we think about what he did during that five-year experimental phase of working on enslaved women, he perfected the Sims speculum, right? He called it the Sims speculum. The uh, lithotomy position that the patients had to get into, he branded the Sims position, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so these men were very anxious about their own sense of economic success professional success, and so it really was this entrepreneurial spirit of early medicine, because also medicine was not necessarily the respected uh, field that it is today, right? People were very wary of these men that they thought of as butchers. Um, and so for especially white men who wanted to um, increase their, their stature within the community, but also gain a national reputation, it had to be linked to, to capitalism. It had to be linked to um, masculine success, right? And so money was at the heart of that. And they're also entering into contractual legal agreements so that they can work on these enslaved people through leasing contracts, right? And so that's the other thing. Slaves are human beings, as we all know, but legally they're movable property. They're chattel. And so you're entering into contracts that at the heart of it you can be sued Right, with the case of Olive and Athy, uh, you can be sued if you damage property or someone essentially, you know, for lack of a better term, and it's a disgusting term, but I think it needs to be uttered here so we get a picture, if you sell them a lemon or mm -hmm. damaged property, mm -hmm. right? And so money sits at the center of that. And if I could follow up on that, I think so. I think that for many people, the story of the of and, and you talk about this very carefully. I think the first chapter the, of the transition between um, midwifery as being a woman's, uh, you know, a, 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 something that's practiced by women, and the and the professionalization, um, the introduction of male uh, doctors and of, of male obstetrics as a practice. Right. So we know that story, but I think that what you tell us that we didn't know is how important 
the access to enslaved women's bodies were. And then the second piece is the way that that evidence is, has been right in front of us for a very long time in the medical journals, right? That these, that, that these men are, you know, because they're branding, because they're, they're producing themselves as experts in the field, they also have this incredibly intimate conversation about the surgeries they're performing, the experiments that they're undertaking, the ways in which black women allegedly do and don't feel pain. All of that stuff is incredibly explicit here. Um, how, did you, how did you find those medical, like how, what, can you just really briefly talk about the archive and like about your path yeah. through it. It's so funny, I'm looking at Kelly Carter Jackson who just edited a book on roots. <laughs> so the roots of this, right, the genealogy of how I came to this topic was all about um, me wanting to understand enslaved women's lives. And as you all know, I mean, many of you are graduate students, you know that there's this sense that, you know, your professors tell you, it has to be new, it has to be innovative, you know, no one should have written about this. And you're just like, what the hell? Like, how, how am I supposed to do this? Um, and so I was, I am a graduate of, of Bennett College, which is an HBCU for women. And so I, you know, I always joke, my side hustle is I make my money with, you know, with my mouth. I'm always like emceeing pro programs, doing public talks. And that was the case when I was a grad student. And so Janetta Cole, who was then president of Bennett College, and um, Beverly Guy Shuffle had just written a book called, I think it was Sister Talk or Gender Talk, Gender Talk, that's it, Gender Talk. And, and so I, of course, being a good MC, read it, and there was this brief, I'm not even a full paragraph, a few sentences on James Marion Sims and experimental surgeries on enslaved women. And I, I remember being angry because A, I graduated from this black women's college, but also, I had a master's degree from Clark Atlanta in African-American studies, and I didn't know that there was a connection between slavery and medicine in any way. I'd heard of Tuskegee, and so I kind of thought it started in the 20th century. And so I remember taking a history of science research seminar class and you know, thinking this would be a good dissertation project, and then recognizing there were so many medical journals, and as you said, I mean, literally right in front of our faces. But because people were not interested in thinking about, um, because originally I was thinking about black women's work as reproductive laborers, so more midwives and slave nurses as opposed to just patients. Um, and then I, I quickly abandoned that because I thought, well, my God, if we've been born, every last human being has a medical experience you know, in some informal or formal way, and how interesting would it be to try to write, craft a story through the fragments of these medical journal articles that really just abound. And so um, the wonderful thing about the, the records that um, exist from the age of United States slavery is that slave owners wrote about everything that affected their slaves, right? I mean everything. And so I could literally go into the archives and just get tons and tons of information because people were not literally interested in it. I mean, you all know we can count on hand how many people are writing about slavery and medicine and have fingers left on the second hand, right? Um, and so that's how I was brought into it. And um, it was really important for me to write at that time a dissertation that centered the lives of enslaved women. And then later I found out about uh, Sims's work 
in New York on uh, poor Irish immigrant women. And so there is a chapter on Irish immigrant women. And much of what he learned in, the, in that slave hospital in Mount Meigs, Alabama, was also practiced on this other vulnerable population. You know, in so many ways in the 19th century, as it was in the 18th century in colonial America, um, if you were vulnerable, a member of a vulnerable group, slaves, orphans, prisoners, um, you know, people in lunatic asylums, as they were called then, debtors' prisons, these men had access to your body. Now, obviously, right, enslaved people are going to get the worst of it. Um, but when it came to reproduction, what becomes interesting is the doctors are very careful not to intentionally damage these women's bodies because they know that black women producing black children helps the machine of slavery move full throttle. And you can also be sued. To me, the other important, it's an anesthetized surgeries on Anarka or the, 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 the way that the women who he um, experimented on were subjected to him. The, one of the ways to understand him is as a, a sadist, is as somebody who was interested or oblivious to these women's pain. But what I think you do is you talk very carefully about the, the economic imperative there, and that in fact, in his, in the framework in which he was working and thinking and writing, he was working to maintain their value as reproductively viable women. And so that, that it's, it's, a, it's important because I think if we stop at Sims as a sadist, we, we fail to see the entire thing that you're laying out here, which is the interplay between slavery right. medicine and, and that, capitalism. Right. And that he's not exceptional. Exa and so this right. is my exactly. thing. That he's, not he's not exceptional. Yeah. If you read this book, you will find that Sims is following in the tradition of men who did this before him, and that there it does not behoove him. And that doesn't mean that there might not have been an exceptional case yeah. of someone wanting to harm uh, enslaved people in that particular way. It does not behoove him. This man literally goes into debt because he has so many contracts out where he's leased enslaved women with this particular um, condition that he could be ruined had he butchered them. He could be sued. He could be imprisoned. He could be run out of town. And so he has to maintain as best, you know, he know how in the 19th century, right, how to uh, maintain their reproduction mm -hmm. and how to correct this disease, as he says, um, that makes these enslaved women unfit for the, the duties of servants, exactly. right? So my thing is, and I've been brought into the fray because of the whole Sims controversy. I'm like, so number one, I center the women in my book. This is not about Sims, right? But there are loads and loads and loads of other doctors um, that we can name, you know, other fathers um, you know, so-called fathers of these, these branches of, of medicine who can be named. Um, and so for me, it's about let's first understand the world of the antebellum uh, South. Let's understand the world of 19th century medicine. Let's understand the legal ramifications of someone intentionally harming another person's property. And then we can have these conversations about just kind of painting folk as either villains or heroes. We don't have to. We don't have to make things up, right? There are other questionable things about Sims. Mm -hmm. 
that we could talk about, right? <laughs> Definitely we could talk about. That's not necessarily one of them. Exactly. Let me um, hand this over to Professor Turner now. So I think I want to keep in the spirit of the book. Um, as you sort of shared, you begin each chapter with a quotation. And of course, Professor Morgan um, also pulled out you know, one of the quotes that I also highlighted um, in my own reading. Um, and I'm sort of going back to the introduction. Um, and the quotation is from Carla Peterson, recovering the black body or the black female body, um, the sort of preface to that book. And Peterson uh, wrote, when invoking the term body, we think of it at first in terms of its materiality, its composition as flesh and bone, its outline and contours, its outgrowth of nail and hair. But the body, as we well know, is never simply matter, for it's never divorced from perception and interpretation. Um, and I really appreciated uh, that quotation because I think it anchors very well some of what you are doing quite you know, exceptionally in the work, which is to sort of show this tension between the body um, as matter and of course the body as sort of a site of meaning um, and Professor Morgan said, you know, as sort of being central to the formation of capitalism. And so I sort of think through uh, concepts of labor and value and the centrality of the reproductive body um, to those concepts within the history of capitalism. And I think one of the things that's really coming out uh, quite strongly um, in your work is sort of that tension. Um, and I think um, Peterson uh, calls it the black female body as the eccentric body, right? Um, and it's that kind of contradiction between how central the black female body was to the rise of capitalism on the one hand, but on the other hand, the way in which it's being discarded, it's being treated as a thing, as a disposable thing, um, as a commodity that has no value. So I'm wondering if you could sort of talk through, you know, the body as a site of analysis um, in your work, um, you know, at those intersections of value and devaluation, or again, using Peterson's language here, of the eccentric body to describe the black female body. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. I thought, you know, in reading um, those few pages, I know it seemed like I read forever. They were literally just like maybe five or six pages. But in... <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so what was interesting for me was to show the kind of cognitive dissonance around the black female body. So in one of the medical case narratives I shared, there's this sense that in medical schools, the kind of prevailing knowledge that um, white physicians, but also white Americans have, is that black women don't experience pain, really all black people. But childbirth presents a very particular experience of not experiencing pain, and yet in the medical journal article, you think cognitive dissonance must have occurred because he wrote how she had to be physically restrained. Mm -hmm. She lost all self-command, right? And after she was restrained, they could continue with the surgery. And so one is then confronted with this eccentric body, or what I call the medical superbody, this theory that black bodies can go beyond. And so what I wanted to show was these terms are, um, they're intentionally messy. They're, I, I mean for them to be ambiguous. I mean for them to hold multiple meanings because black women's bodies held multiple meanings, right? Um, that you could be strong, you could be an exemplar, for um, curing or fixing all women, 
and yet at the same time be written about and treated in ways that um, put them on par with the animals, right? And so, you know, in, in a really, in a very real sense, what I hope came through, because I wanted to also write a book that was accessible. I mean, it was a book that had to try, you know, try and give me tenure, right? So it needs to be academic, you know, that's the practicality of it all. But at the same time, this is a book that contains a lot of narratives, a lot of stories, and I wanted it to be accessible, but I was using the theoretical frameworks of the laboring body or the, the late Stephanie Camp's three bodies or Hortense Spiller's um, work and Sadia Hartman's work about um, the American grammar book that is literally um, rooted in slavery and medicine and ideas about black women's bodies that I think needs to continue to be explored, right? Um, the fact that it was black women's reproductive bodies, that man making all the noise is my husband. <laughs> so I'll forgive him. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, so when we, we think about the time period that both of you um, cover, and I was literally just teaching this on Tuesday, about the ways that in British colonial America, in these colonies, right, that you can have a law that's based on something that is classic and at least a thousand years old, right? Um, primogeniture, geniture, I can never say it. Um, but that law that says that in, in English or British common law, the child inherits the status of the father. But because of the reproductive labor, right, of these laboring women, all of a sudden colonial law changes throughout British America, right? where all of a sudden you now have a law that says children born to enslaved women right, now take the condition of the mother. And so inherently reproductive medicine is about the ways in which people are constantly, you know, kind of stripping away, adding on to, you know, um, flanking black women's bodies um, and trying to figure these things out. And in fact, they're still trying to figure these things out, right? And so a part of the American grammar book is you move from a breeding woman to the hot and tot woman to um, the welfare queen in the 20th century and it goes on to the thought, right? I mean, but this all is rested upon this idea of this woman's unbridled reproductive, um, either her, her reproductive carelessness, mm -hmm. right? Or the control of her reproduction by others who know better, yeah. right, allegedly. Yeah. So I want to um, talk a bit about the American grammar book. So you sort of um, invoked Horton Spiller. And so full disclosure, um, Deirdre Cooper Owens and I have been friends for a very long time. Um, and we've sort of, you know, been sister scholars in, you know, a very true sense where we've exchanged um, drafts of chapters. We've sort of, you know, cried with each other um, at various uh, points of disappointment in going through the writing and rewriting phase. And one of the things that I sort of know um, is the title of the book has changed. <laughs> uh, there was a moment when you were working with medical super bodies mm -hmm. um, as a title. And I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the titling and in a much broader sense, the kind of linguistic choices that you make in talking about your work um, and in the signed copy when there's a funny story about this, which I won't get into, uh, you sort of mentioned to the mothers of gynecology. And when we talk about the mothers of gynecology and we talk about medical superbodies, 
One of the things that I sort of mull over in my mind is sort of Horton Spiller making the argument that, you know, the language of the family does not apply to the enslaved in the way we think of. So, you know, if, you know, a woman gives birth to a child, that child is property. So how do you sort of think in terms of in familial terms? So I guess I'm trying to get through your thinking process in how you're wrestling through those kind of, you know, linguistic difficulties or messiness, as you've pointed out, in using medical superbodies to sort of title and then, you know, pull back from that and talking about these women um, as mothers of gynecology, um, you know, as well. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, the language, how do you define people who, you know, are human beings and at the same time considered legal property, right? I mean, people were constantly trying to figure out um, what blackness meant, what motherhood and womanhood meant for enslaved black uh, people, especially women. So the first, um, title was medical superbodies and I kept getting so people either loved it or hated it which is why it's now just a theoretical concept in the book um, because you know for them it invoked some idea of like these super women and um, I didn't want to continue to um, objectify them and so that was scrapped and then I thought mothers of gynecology right most people are familiar with the you know the sim story um, and so I thought about the women he leased, he experimented on, but also after um, the white community withdrew support, he had to train these women to assist him as surgical nurses and assistants. You know, so I'm like, in a very real sense, they were the mothers of gynecology. The editorial feedback was that I gave them too much agency. And so I didn't know. I was like, I, I'm just call it a book, right? <laughs> a book on medical history. I, I mean, I was literally um, scratching my head and at my wit's end. And so I remember the race, gender, and the origins of American gynecology came to me from someone on the editorial team at my press. And I thought, that's great. And then I got these titles that really sounded like graphic horror no novels and a cover of the forceps that were, you know, had blood dripping from it. So I was like, okay, so this is not a graphic horror novel. This is, you know, a history book. And we're not going to um, try to, you know, traumatize people in, in this way. What we're trying to do, at least what my, my intent was, was to present a history um, in, a, in an emotional way, in a balanced way, in an objective way, but also in as truthful a way as I, I could. Um, with the, the sources that I had. And so I came up with medical bondage. Um, and I hope that encapsulates um, what this history is really about, right? That it is intersectional in so many ways, whether it's um, economic history, medical history, immigration history, women's history, the history of slavery in this country, um, African-American history. And so I wanted it to contain all of those elements to show just how linked slavery was to almost everything that we think about um, or don't think about. And so, you know, I am constantly in my everyday interactions with people, giving them the language to be able to understand what a lemon law means and what it meant in the 19th century, 
right? When I go in, if, if any of you are fortunate enough to have health insurance and you can go into spaces, if, you know, to get a pap smear and to talk about, oh yeah, you know, the specula. I mean, I'm sure they're like, would you just shut up? You know, I'm actually a doctor, you write about them. Hush, let me just examine you. But I'm constantly saying, oh, did you know that this was perfected on enslaved women, right? And, and these kinds of conversations, because the American grammar book has been so confined to Af academic spaces that I think it's important for people, you know, whoever they are, to be able to be conversant. I mean, that's the thing about language. We need to be conversant with each other. We need to be speaking from the same page. And so what I'm hoping is that um, through people's engagement, particularly with the stories, they can begin to start to ask questions um, about the things that they encountered connected to these different institutions. Mm -hmm. So I wanna ask a slightly more specific question now, um, especially for those of you who haven't had the chance to read the book yet. Um, one of the really interesting things that you do is that there's a chapter on Irish women and on the ways in which the Irish, and again, for those of you who are familiar with the history of race in the, in the 19th century, like this idea that the Irish sort of only become white over time is very familiar, right? So we know that the Irish are in this kind of special degraded status for some time. Um, and, and, and so I would like you to talk just more generally about that chapter and what you're doing there. But I did have a particular question. It seemed to me that you were saying that Irish women emerge in the North as, as a likely, um, as likely uh, subjects of experimentation for for the emerging medical um, establishment because of freedom, because of, of the emancipation laws that meant that those physicians didn't have enslaved black women as subjects in, in as robust numbers in Boston or New York or Philadelphia. Um, and so I was wondering if you if, if you were seeing I mean, this is the kind of question that historians are not supposed to ask, but like if there had been slavery in the North still in such, in the, would, would the, would Irish women, would, would the sort of racialization of the Irish not have happened to the same extent? Because part of what you're saying is that Irish women's racialization happens, well, Irish racialization happens because of Irish women's gynecological kind of use value. I don't know. So I was wondering if you could just yeah. talk through those, yeah. the issues that, that, that you explore in that chapter. I, yeah, so I, I try to lay out a history of, I mean, many of us are um, familiar with the ways that the, the British had colonized the Irish. And so there were already ways that um, early scientists had uh, written and, and travelers had written about Irish women that, you know, we could compare to the ways that they had written about African women, you know, from the um, kind of derogatory descriptions of these women's bodies and genitalia, um, their reproductive capabilities, um, all of those things are very, very similar. But what I think is, because I tended to look on the East Coast, so the Northeast and the Southeast, the Irish um, predominated in terms of many of the European ethnic groups, and they were vulnerable. You know, um, out of European ethnic women, you had more single Irish women to come into this country, particularly in northern urban centers, than um, uh, some other um, ethnic, you know, eth uh, ethnic uh, European immigrants. And so I just really think it was just 
they were poor. They lived in, you know, ghettos. Um, Sims Hospital, especially in New York, um, which is where I really focus on a lot of the Irish, Sims's Hospital was in close proximity to these Irish immigrant tenements, you know, in ghettos. And so, you know, I always say if this was a history on California, we'd probably be talking about Mexican women. Wisconsin, maybe German women, right? Um, and so I think the the way it, it it worked also for me was to be able to present a group that people at least knew something about in terms of the racialization or the mapping on of, of blackness to Irish immigrant people, right? So that you could say, oh, okay, now I, I get what the mapping of blackness meant, right? So these are people born in Europe, they have white skin in terms of their hue, and yet a lot of the racialized ways of, of um, these men like Sims, right? A lot of the racialized ways of thinking about blackness, about thinking about um, defectiveness or degradation can be placed on bodies that are seen very similarly. You know, I often, um, this is a, since we're asking questions and answering questions that historians are not supposed to ask, right? In um, some of my classes, especially when I was teaching around, um, you know, right after 9-11 and Cornell West got in a bit of hot water, this is before the whole Ta-Nehisi Coates thing, right? When he first got in the hot water um, in a kind of post 9-11 moment and he said that um, Middle Eastern folk, right? Uh, Muslim Americans had been, I'm not gonna use the full word, but in, in arise, if y'all know what I mean, right? And he, he got into some trouble and it was because of the contentious relationships that Middle Eastern um, merchants were having with their African-American customers in these urban spaces. And so I would always say this whole notion of someone being the new N-word has roots in this country that has a long history. The difference is the hue was white before, right? And then you had a new immigrant group to kind of take that, to take that person's place. Um, and so once again, it was utility. Um, I will say it was actually hard to write about Irish immigrant women outside of labor, like them being domestic workers or criminals, sex workers, because people just assumed they had a lot of babies because they were Catholic. And so it became really difficult to try to extract information about these women's lives because people just weren't interested. So, you know, you're cross-checking census records if they exist or trying to figure out surnames that are Irish. I mean, there might be times when the doctors were very intentional about listing a patient's ethnicity or race um, back then, um, but it, it was actually quite difficult. And that's why, you know, it's not a kind of true or fair comparative history, but I wanted to be able to at least have us think about what mapping blackness meant in the 19th century. Although you do show this way in which in particularly unsettling and virulent cases when, when these physicians are writing up their cases, if they, it seems like then they use the, that, they're like, she was Irish, she was stout. She was a liar. She was a liar. <laughs> she, yeah. she was, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. dumb, mm -hmm. like literally yeah. that word. So it, it is interesting, again, that it's through these descriptions of gynecological excess yeah. Yeah. that they get racialized mm -hmm. as, I, that Irish carries a racialized meaning. Yeah. yeah.
So because it's Valentine's Day, <laughs> um, I want to pull another section uh, to, I think this might have been chapter three. I'm here on page 85 talking about the story of um, Mariah Hines or Maria Hines, um, who was forced into a quote unquote marriage um, with another enslaved man. Um, and you sort of, you know, talk about uh, Maria or Hines sort of bearing three children and then sort of acknowledging over time that she learned to love and to celebrate um, her husband. And there's a line um, or a few lines from that paragraph, which I'll, I'll read again, um, and then sort of ask you a question on, on agency and sort of thinking through resistance, for example. So um, you write that black women's ability to love romantic partners, can I say to love romantic partners again, uh, forced on them was very similar to women's ability, I'm sorry, was very similar to their choosing to love children resulting from rape or to nurture those they were forced to raise after the children's parents had been sold away. Bondwoman's resistance must be read as a central theme critical to understanding the totality of their lives, even as they lived within the restrictive contours of slavery and professional medicine. And I, I sort of read that line alongside a few lines in the chapter from which you read, chapter two, um, and specifically thinking through the limitations on enslaved women's ability to resist, or there's a line where you say they could do very little to protect themselves from a toll, or you know, even if they resisted, that resistance did not protect them from the invasiveness um, of the medical surgeries and treatment that they were forced to undergo. And I guess my, my sort of broad uh, question and thinking through where I, I guess I'm seeing the, the historiography moving now is sort of a push away from resistance, or if not a push away from resistance, we are attempting to rethink what resistance and agency mean. And so I'm sort of, um, you know, asking that you, you, for you to talk about, you know, what resistance and agency mean for you in the context of these women's lives, where on the one hand, you're seeing somewhat of an inability to resist, but here are these other moments where we're seeing actual uh, agency being evidenced and manifested. I mean, once again, you know, slavery pre presents so many, so many contradictions. Um, and so these are all terms we give these folk, right? Ultimately, they're living their lives and they're making decisions about their lives um, as things happen, you know? And so one, you know, I, I think about this, you know, for these women who were forced to bear children um, by their owners or overseers or even an enslaved man that they didn't particularly like, but the owner forced on them, um, how do you choose to love someone who doesn't look like you, right? You might not like the way that that child um, behaves because he or she acts like their, their parent that you don't really care for. Um, you may not be very maternal, and yet if someone is sold away and you are forced to raise their child, you know, I, I think about the kind of daily realities of these people's lives and that as much as we want to affix agency and resistance, and I'm not saying that those terms aren't important and they aren't applicable, but folk are just 
a trying to survive and if they're lucky thrive in some in some way and so for them to be able decades after bondage ends for them to recall in a tender moment that although I was forced to have children by this man because he was so nice to me I chose to love him right and to think about that um, you know in a very particular way right so how do you how do you as a human being make the best of the worst situation um, and so that's just incredible to me right to, to think about the ways that enslaved people continue to show us their humanity and our humanity um, in, in, these, in these intimate moments. Um, these are people who didn't like talking about their lives very much, right? Um, and so the government literally has to come in and send interviewers into their space to get these stories because it's so painful and hard and difficult for them. And some of them, at least, um, can look back at a moment that I just couldn't conceive of for myself and recall some tenderness with others who, who looked like them when they looked in the mirror, right? I think that's um, important. I think that um, the ways in which, you know, to, to get to this idea of kind of pushing back against resistance is to ask ourselves why it's so important to make slaves or the enslaved lofty when they were human, right? Um, and so there is still deep shame about slavery that a lot of us carry with us. Um, there is, I think, a lot of um, angst, particularly with African-Americans involved in this work. I don't know how many times I have a Facebook friend who is a brilliant man and is always kind of, you know, poking the bear in terms of historians of slavery because he hates the fact that we say enslaved um, because he's like, that's more about us in the 21st century, mm -hmm. right? When they lived in slavery, they called themselves lots of things. You read the records, they called themselves the N-words, they called themselves slaves, they call, I mean, they called themselves lots of things. And so what is it about 21st century historians and scholars mm -hmm. who are engaged in these kinds of debates and sometimes you can lose sight of the fact that these were human beings thrust into a situation that we cannot imagine. Um, and so I think we need to have some capaciousness around these issues to continue to center their lives. I'm not saying that, at a, you know, kind of um, arguments about linguistics isn't important. I use enslaved in my work. I use slave in my work. I use bond people in my work. Um, you know, I, I use a range of um, descriptors, but what's more important for me is, are we getting the stories out? Are we asking critical questions? Are we, are we able to view them through a lens that shows the range of their inhumanity and sometimes inhumanity, right? I mean, in chapter three, I talk about um, a few cases of enslaved men who rape children and how the court now has to deal with a concept that doesn't exist for slaves, rape, right, legally, and yet at the same time, it's medicalized in medical journals, right? And so, I mean, these are, yeah, it's complicated, right? These are enslaved folk who are raping people within their community. And so how do you deal with that? Or even there's an excerpt 
you know, where I include Robert Smalls's, you know, the, the celebrated South Carolina Reconstruction Era Senator, and he has damning words about black women and girls' sexuality and preference for white men that read almost like something Thomas Jefferson wrote, right, in Notes of a, um, Notes on Virginia, right, in Notes on the State of Virginia. Very similar. And so how do we deal with that as well? I think that's a good place for us to open up for questions. So we should do, should we do that? Do you want to? Thank you. Um, so yes, we'd like to open this up for questions. And look, <laughs> we have a question. Hi, Kelly Carter Jackson. Um, I'm super excited for this uh, discussion because I have all three of your books. Two of them are on my syllabus. Um, and it got me thinking about a lot of things, your book in particular, and then the first chapter of your book, um, which I believe is called They Could Suckle Over Their Shoulder. Um, and, and I was thinking about, my students and I were talking about um, the film Get Out and how in the film, whether you've seen it or not, they're, they're literally trying to occupy black people's bodies. And there is this critic that says, Sometimes uh, racism is not about being violently hated. Sometimes it's about being obscenely loved. And the idea that, you know, when you look at black bodies as spectacle, or when you look at black bodies as this, this idea of something that you want to inhabit, but at the same time you're repulsed by, and you talked about this idea as well, that you're fascinated, but yet at the same time repulsed. And so I wanted to know if you could talk about that sort of obscene love because Sims also talks about these women as though they're so courageous and you know all the things that they're going through and he he values them in this very weird obscene way that um that I don't think is, is complicated enough to really see that there's a flip side to this this racism as well it's not just about the violence it's also about the the perverted adoration, I guess, I'm trying to find a, a yeah. adjectives that will work. <laughs> yeah. thank, thank you. So I, I will say, for me, love cannot be obscene. It cannot be tough. But I, I you know, obviously I, I get what you're saying. Um, and I'm going to expand it beyond Sims. This is the way that I don't care whether you were a Northern-based abolitionist uh, a southern plantation owner like Thomas Jefferson, a medical entrepreneur who is considered pioneering because of the gynecological work that he's doing. These are folk who really think that they love black people, right? Because the, the kind of burden of being the great white fathers to this um, infantilized race demands that they show these folk love. And so, you know, what Sims does is in the tradition of his great founding father, Thomas Jefferson, right? A man who could write that African people, look, and, I, and I'm being very clear here when I say I look at your face and my face, and we have beautiful, rounded, fluffy features, right? And dark skin and hair that isn't straight but curls, and yet he says people who look like us physically, right? The reason we look this way is because West African women, although he had not been to the continent of Africa ever, West African women prefer to mate with orangutans rather than their own men. But he could look at Sally, 
whose grandmama came from Nigeria with scarification on her face, and although she might have been considered a quadroon, right, he could still look at this woman knowing she was black, knowing he owned his children by her, and not flinch, get a room built into his mansion, right, his plantation house that's right beside the bedroom that he shares with his white family. And so what I'm saying is the ways in which I think our language is sometimes, it's, it's too limited. We don't call a thing a thing, right? That's not love. That is actually perversion. It is obscenity. It is this master class or group um, trying to figure out what it is they're doing because they don't understand the attraction to the perverted, eccentric black body. And so they have to then couch it in this, they require us to be this way because they are defective. When in reality, you know, black folk aren't out here trying to seek white people's love, right? It's, I mean, in order to be a master, you have to have a slave. So their whole status is dependent upon black folk. Black folk's status isn't dependent upon them. And so, I mean, that's a kind of, you know, roundabout way of just saying that um, I think we are still trying to figure out what that actually means. Um, and I think if we can maybe not center um, folk like Sims or, or whomever, but to show that this is a pattern, right? I mean, I think Barbara Fields and Karen Fields' book, Racecraft, does a really good job of that, right? Of showing that there's nothing exceptional about this, that it was established a long time ago and the cultural practices continue to go on. But unfortunately, within this country, um, you know, outside of indigenous people, the ways in which um, white Americans learn to mistreat others is really by their um, definitions and treatments and cultural practices of degrading black people. You have to degrade black, degrade black people if your economic livelihood depends upon it. Uh, okay. I know you don't really need a mic, but I'll bring it to you anyway. It may be very loud, no. Mm -hmm. um, first, thank you. Um, um, that was just remarkable. Uh, I've learned so much just um, in these few moments, and thank you for this work. Um, I just uh, think that you had said that you, uh, when you were beginning the research as a graduate student, um, that you were thinking about doing work on uh, female, uh, enslaved female uh, medical workers, midwives, and, um, and nurses. Um, so one, I wanted to know what happened um, to that work and whether or not um, you'll be doing producing that uh, quite soon, and two, um, I wanted to know if in this process of the development of um, gynecology through the use of enslaved women, does that have an effect on, um, what effect does that have, if any, on these uh, women who are already working as midwives um, and as, as medical workers, maybe using traditions that are separate from the ones that you detail? Mm -hmm. um, thank, thank you so much. Um, so I'll answer the second part of your question first. Um, you know, so what it does is it increases the economic value that these women have, but it also increases the kind of knowledge production, um, the specialized skills that these women possess as healers. And so what this means is, you know, as much as folk wrote, you know, in the 18th and the 19th century about black people not having the intellectual capability to do anything, 
owners are now sending these women out to deliver the babies of black and white women in the community. They are on large plantations. You will literally see um, in ledgers kind of every five to 10 years, uh, it might be an old, I remember there was an old peg and a young peg, an old Lizette and a young Lizette. But these people are um, essentially serving as apprentices for younger women. And the thing that kind of brings them into the healing arts is that they've been sick. And so, you know, so it's interesting to me to kind of see the value that these women have on the plantation as, as healers, as patients, and then the ways that their masters actually trust them and entrust them to make money for their, you know, for themselves. Um, so that's really interesting. So I always think about what happens to uh, Anarka, Betsy, Lucy, the other uh, enslaved women that we know about, some of the ones that I mentioned in the book, once they're released from the experimental phases or once they're released from the hospitals, do they go back to the plantation with the knowledge that they now have acquired? And you know, how are they treated? Has their economic value increased? Um, that might be a really interesting work for other graduate students. So to answer this, the first part of your question, um, the reason I didn't pursue it is because I, it's now in the, you know, I will say in the annals of black history. Um, I'm not touching it. I just, it, it's depressing. And I'm like, they can tell you, I like to crack jokes and smile. And even my husband would say, what in the world? I mean, it just was depressing. So I'm picking another depressing topic. But this time I want to expand it beyond um, just enslaved women. I am really interested in looking at enslaved people more broadly, women, men, men children, um, and thinking about mental illness and slavery. And so there are some ways that I think, you know, there's something about the history of medicine other than I, I don't have kind of formalized medical training. I'm not a physician or anything like that, but I, you know, I, my mother, has a, a degree in professional biology, I think might have just passed something on to me, but I've always been interested in the history of medicine. Um, there's something about understanding the rise of this particular field, but the first hospitals established in this country, even when it was still a colony, were hospitals for the insane. And so to think about what in the world would allow someone to classify an enslaved person as insane. Like, what must you have done, right, to be classified, not just by your community, but also those who owned you and doctors um, as an insane person during this time? And so there are, if I could just share this story, it's so funny, there's this one story, um, this one case where this, this boy, who's 16, goes into, a colored asylum in Virginia. And this is the 1840s, I think, 1840s, 1850s. And he was sent there because he was beating his mother, a no-no, right, who was enslaved, and just acting out, stripping down naked in the fields, painting himself with, with you know, poke berries and all of these kinds of things. And so anyway, the owner's just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. The parents are embarrassed. And so you realize families are kind of the same no matter the time period because they bring him to the insane asylum or the lunatic asylum as it was called, and he is admitted. And so the, the person who is the admittance officer asks the father, which I'm just amazed, right? This is an enslaved man. And he says, sir, well, when did this happen? And so the father can't say, 
Well, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe he was born this way or maybe he developed. The father makes up this elaborate excuse. Well, I think it was because he was carrying baskets of hot cornbread on his head to everybody in the field and the heat from the baskets and the hot cornbread made him crazy. No, sir. No, it didn't, sir. <laughs> so, right, but just the ways in which parents love their children, they don't want to see them as defective. Um, and so the father comes up with this elaborate story about hot cornbread and the heat that makes his son addle-brained and a lunatic, right? And so that was really interesting for me to also think about the dynamics of family, um, of the economic loss, you know, what are the insurance policies to kind of go back to um, this, you know, the intersections of the history of capitalism and medicine, but also the fact that Americans from the very beginning donated money, time, and knowledge to the establishment of these hospitals. And enslaved people and black people were always in the mix, right? And so for me as the historian of slavery, I think for all of us, is to always say, no matter how much, you know, this country in America wants to act as if they have amnesia, slavery is always there. And so as long as I can produce and talk, people are gonna know. American slavery sits at the heart of everything in this country, right? Even insane asylums, right? Um, so that I will stop there. So that's the next project. Yeah. Um, so I think that we probably don't have enough time for more questions <laughs> because we need to be finished by 8 o'clock. Uh, but what I would like to do is first thank this incredible, beautiful <laughs> panel of uh, scholars and historians, uh, and I'd like us to give them an extraordinary round of applause. I, I so appreciate the fact that you all were willing to come and be the inaugural group for this book salon, and by the fact, by the you all are the evidence that we can do this here, and so we will be doing it again. <laughs> There's another book salon uh, in March um, with Professor Bianca Williams, who is on faculty here, and she'll be talking about her work on tran tra transnational emo the, the pursuit of yes, happiness, happiness, but it's like yep. transnational emotions. Yes. <laughs> yeah, see? <laughs> um, and then we'll have another one in May. But I want to thank each and every one of you for coming this evening, and we hope that we'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.